Back in January, believe it or not, we began looking together at the gospel according to Mark. And this is how Mark started. Here is chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So from the very start, Mark let us know the gospel is not good advice about how to live. It's good news about a person. And last week, as Steve led us through the account of Jesus' death, the passage finished with these words. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Well, that's great, isn't it? At the beginning, Mark told us Jesus was the Son of God. And now even this Roman centurion has grasped the truth. So that's enough, isn't it? We can look back over the life of Jesus. We can reflect on his death. And we know we are reading about the life and death of the Son of God. Actually, it's not enough. It's not enough because Jesus promised there would be more. Back in chapter 8, Mark told us this. He, that's Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So if the good news about Jesus ended with Jesus' death, it wouldn't be good news. Jesus would be a dead liar. And the centurion's insight into who Jesus was would actually be a false insight, a mistake. If Jesus died like the Son of God, but stayed dead then he wasn't actually the Son of God. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So we can be very thankful Mark's good news does not end with Jesus' death. Tonight we're going to look at what happened after Jesus' death. So if you haven't already turned there, turn in your church Bible, if that's what you're using, to page 1023, or in the large print Bibles 1587. But before I read this passage... We need to answer a question. This is the end of our series on Mark. And the screen says we are covering up to chapter 16, verse 8 tonight. But if you have a Bible open, you will see that our Bibles also include verses 9 to 20. Why are we not going to look at those verses? Well, even though our Bibles include verses 9 to 20, they also have a note, which you'll see at the end of verse 8. 
the NIV says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. Whatever translation you happen to be using, it will say something very similar to that. So what are the Bible translators telling us? Well, when the New Testament writers were doing their writing, there were, of course, no printing presses. After they had finished their book or their letter, the only way to make a copy was to copy it by hand. And copies were then made of those copies. And today we have several thousand copies of the New Testament manuscripts, over 5,000. They're housed in various libraries around the world. Some of them are very early copies, and some of them were made much later. What this note in our Bibles is telling us is that when we compare the copies made closest to Mark's time with the copies that were made later on, the early copies end at chapter 16, verse 8. So we know that verses 9 to 20 were not written by Mark. They were added later. So why does that lead us to ignore verses 9 to 20? Well, it's not because there's anything particularly bad in those verses. It's because when we talk about the Bible being God's word, we mean that what the biblical writers originally wrote is God's word. If some anonymous person decided to add bits later, those bits are not part of God's word. And so while verses 9 to 20 are interesting, it really would be better if they weren't included in our Bibles. And I'm glad that the new NIV has at least reduced them to smaller size print to make it doubly clear Mark didn't write them. And what we're interested in is what Mark wrote. Now having said that, when we get to chapter 16, verse 8, it will be very easy to see why the extra verses were added. Mark's ending feels very abrupt. It feels unfinished. Now, I think that is intentional, and I'll explain that later. But it's not hard to see why a scribe would feel the need to add something. Verses 9 to 20 were probably included as a kind of appendix to summarize what happened after the point where Mark stopped. It probably wasn't an attempt to deceive people. It wasn't being presented as Mark's own work. It was just tacked on the end of his gospel. And in fact, many of the copies which include verses 9 to 20 have notes in the margin just like the notes we have in our Bibles, indicating this bit wasn't in the earliest copies. So with that explanation, let's read together the end of Mark's gospel, beginning at chapter 15, verse 40. Chapter 39, or verse 39, excuse me, has just told us Jesus died. And verse 40 says, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. 
In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is God's word. This passage is about what the women saw and heard. And that is pretty striking. It's striking because earlier Mark recorded in detail how all the men had run off, including Peter, the unofficial leader of the disciples. But the women are still there. And the fact that the women are the focus here is also remarkable because in the ancient world, their testimony was worthless. It had no legal weight. But here, the record of what happens after Jesus' death hangs on the testimony of women. If someone in the ancient world wanted to make up a resurrection story, they wouldn't have women be the witnesses. And so today, as we read this, knowing what we know about the culture of the time, the women are actually a big reassurance that we're reading the truth. At the time, women were a handicap to the resurrection reports. People didn't trust women. But today, the women make this ring true. We know someone writing a fabricated report would have had men involved at this point. And in this passage, Mark leads us step by step through what the women saw and heard. First of all, 
they saw Jesus die. In verse 40, Mark names three of them, Mary, Mary, and Salome. He tells us these were long-term followers of Jesus. They'd been with him in Galilee, in the north of Israel, and they had followed him down to Jerusalem, along with many other women. And now they stand here, faithfully watching him die. And what follows gives us official confirmation that Jesus really did die. Chapter 15, verse 42 says, It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish council that had condemned Jesus. But Luke tells us in his gospel, Joseph had not consented to the council's decision and action. But because of his prominent position, Joseph has access to Pilate. And now he plucks up the courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body. He might not have had courage before, but he finds the courage now. And to understand how significant this was, we need to know what would normally happen to someone in Jesus' position. Remember, the whole purpose of crucifixion was to be a very public, gruesome deterrent for criminals or potential criminals. The message was, look what happens if you get on the wrong side of Roman law. And so around their empire, the Romans would usually leave corpses rotting on the cross for maximum effect on the watching population. But the situation in Israel was a bit different. Jewish law in Deuteronomy said that dead bodies were not to be left unburied overnight. And so, out of sensitivity to that, the Romans would take down crucified bodies and throw them in mass graves. And in this particular case, there's still another factor for us to be aware of. Jesus died at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. We were told that in chapter 15, verse 34. Sabbath starts at sunset on Friday. That was about 6 p.m. And no work was allowed on the Sabbath. So if Joseph is going to save Jesus from a mass grave, he only has three hours to request Jesus' body, retrieve it, and get it buried. But you'll notice that Pilate doesn't rush here. Joseph might be in a hurry, but Pilate isn't. He wants to be doubly sure. He doesn't want to be caught out. And so he does a careful check before he releases Jesus' body. Verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, 
took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. The woman saw Jesus die, and now they saw where Jesus was buried. And Pilate had made doubly sure it was a dead body Joseph buried. Chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? We can see here the women are all geared up, expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. And they are hurrying to the tomb to meet him. Actually, that is not what happens at all. Despite the fact that they love Jesus, and they would have loved to see him alive again, despite the fact that he promised he would rise again, these women are not expecting it in the least. They're so confident he's not going to rise, they have bought expensive spices to anoint his dead body. Maybe they assumed Joseph was in such a hurry on Friday that he had neglected to do that or not done it properly. But these ladies want their beloved teacher to have a proper burial. It's the least they can do to say goodbye to him. And it's important to realize that is what they are expecting, to say goodbye to a dead body. Personally, I find this one of the most convincing pieces of evidence for the resurrection. The fact that none of Jesus' followers were expecting it. And after it happens, all four Gospels show us men and women who take a massive amount of convincing that it has actually happened. In fact, the only evidence they will accept is an actual meeting with the risen Jesus. No lesser evidence was enough for these disciples. In the case of these ladies, they are hurrying to the tomb, wanting to get the body anointed before it begins to seriously decompose. But they haven't really thought things through very well. On Friday, they were careful to identify where Jesus was buried... They've bought the spices they need, but on the way, they remember the stone that was rolled across the entrance. They know it's too big for them to shift. So they just have to hope they'll find someone there to help them. But, verse 4 says, when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. 
On Friday, the women saw Jesus die. They saw where Jesus was buried. And on Sunday, they saw a stone rolled away, an angel, and an empty tomb. The young man here is an angel. Back in Mark chapter 1, we learned Jesus was attended by angels at the start of his ministry when he was confronted by Satan in the wilderness. And here, having completed his mission by defeating Satan on the cross, Jesus has again been attended by angels. And this one has a message for the ladies. He tells them Jesus has risen, and he invites them to examine the empty tomb. But the angel and the ladies both know a stone rolled away and an empty tomb could mean a whole lot of different things. In and of themselves, they do not prove a resurrection has taken place. But the angel has more for them. Verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They were promised they would see Jesus alive. There is amazing grace in verse 7. The women are given a message for the man who deserted Jesus. And you'll notice that Peter, the one who deserted Jesus most publicly, is mentioned specifically. This message is for Peter too. Jesus' disciples have not been written off. When Jesus died on the cross for sin, their sin was included. They are invited to come and be reconciled to him. And that grace for deserters should give encouragement to us. Jesus' arms are open to receive deserters. He's still calling deserters to come and follow him. And here, alongside the hope of personal forgiveness, the angel is promising the crucial evidence the disciples need. To know that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that he truly has defeated sin and can forgive sin. And give resurrection life. When they meet Jesus alive, they'll know all that he promised them is true. So we might think that now, finally, these women will start whipping and dancing for joy. But look what actually happens in verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Instead of improving their mood, the angel's message seems too much for the women. Their reaction is to be silent and afraid. 
And it's easy to see, isn't it, why later copiers didn't want to leave it at this. And some scholars have suggested Mark himself intended to write more, but he wasn't able to for whatever reason. That's possible, but we have absolutely no evidence for that. All the evidence says this is how Mark planned to end his gospel. And another element to this is the fact that by the time Mark is writing, reports of the risen Jesus' appearances are widespread. They're common knowledge. So why does Mark go out of his way not to mention them? Well, here's my own sense as I read this. I think Mark wants to leave us with a vivid impression of what Jesus' followers were like between the empty tomb and actually meeting Jesus. They were unconvinced. Now, they know something out of the ordinary is going on, of course. The word afraid was used of the disciples earlier in the gospel. When they were in the boat with Jesus during a storm, and he stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves. The disciples knew that day that some awesome power was at work, but they didn't understand. They were shaken by what happened. They weren't joyful. And it's the same with the women here. They're shaken, but they really don't understand. I think Mark ends here as a way of saying the empty tomb wasn't enough. The empty tomb didn't produce the bold witnesses we see over in the book of Acts. If the empty tomb was all these disciples had to go on, there would be no Christianity today. The disciples would have stayed silent and afraid. And the church would not exist today. Between the empty tomb and the evangelization of the world, something else happened. That something else was that the disciples really did meet the risen Jesus. They didn't just hear a report about him, they met him. And the other three Gospels tell us about those meetings. It was those meetings that changed their silence and fear into confident proclamation about Jesus. It was those meetings with Jesus that produced men and women willing to die for the truth of the resurrection. Mark wants to impress on us that if all we have is an empty tomb, then really we have nothing. But there is a church today because the founders of the church saw and touched the risen Jesus. And that's why today, you and I can take our stand on the truth of the resurrection. We can build our lives on the truth that our Savior is alive and reigning with authority to forgive sin. And he's coming back. The gospel is not good advice about how to live. 
It is good news about a person. Because Jesus is alive, he will walk with us through our lives. And later he will give us resurrection life. So if your faith has been getting weak, come back to the foundation of your faith. Strengthen your faith with the truth of the resurrection. And if you've been hedging your bets about Jesus, there is good reason to trust him. Read on in the New Testament and then come and put your faith in the risen Jesus. We're going to close with two resurrection songs. And in between these two songs, we're going to remind ourselves